Hello and welcome to Parley, the Hindu's weekly discussion podcast. I'm Prashant Parmal, your host for the day. The 27th United Nations Climate Change Conference concluded earlier this week in Egypt. At the event, almost 200 countries pledged to set up a loss and damage fund with the aim of helping out poor countries affected by the effects of climate change. Poor countries have naturally welcomed the setting up of the compensation fund, which has been a long-time demand of theirs. Uh, developed nations, however, have not been uh, were not really happy with the conference uh, due to the level of commitment that the poor countries have shown towards uh, cutting down greenhouse gas emissions and the phasing out of uh, fossil fuels. So to discuss this issue, I have with me Mr. Naurosh Dubash, who is a professor at the Center for Policy Research, and uh, Tejal Kanitka, who is an associate professor at the National Institute of Advanced Studies in Bangalore. Uh, welcome to both of you. My first question is like to the, to the issue was like uh, with the, all the talk about uh, the compensation fund and stuff. Uh, what exactly do you think, first of all, is the likely economic cost of uh, climate change and uh, also like uh, how do poor countries weigh the you know the cost of climate change against the cost of you know not here like cutting down on greenhouse gas emissions I mean like cutting down on fossil fuels and stuff like that how exactly do they weigh the uh, costs of each and decide yeah. now Ros, can you start like start with that you uh, sure uh, so uh, I think what is now increasingly well established is that the cost of climate impacts is uh, considerable uh, to economies we're already beginning to see some of those impacts. And uh, as we, as these unfold, uh, as temperatures increase, uh, the cost of not addressing climate change uh, is is likely to rise quite a bit. And this is going to be not just in a few countries, but it will be affecting sort of ecosystems in uh, unpredictable ways and and climatic systems like the monsoon and, and so on. The science is developing on this, but I think there's there's enough to know that uh, that that these these costs are high. If if the question that you're asking is about the relative costs of trying to mitigate climate change versus the costs of those impacts. Yeah, so that is a more uh, complex question. And I think the way to think about this is not to think about mitigation as a distinct thing uh, that one does, but the kinds of transitions that are required to bring about that, uh, that mitigation. So, for example, there is a shift towards lower emitting energy systems around the world. That's a technological shift that's happening. And the costs of those technologies have decreased, in particular, renewable energy, uh, the stores, so renewable energy costs, uh, solar costs have, have dropped 80% in the last uh, decade, uh, for example, and so have storage costs to the point where it is now more or less cost competitive with coal-fired power plants. So in terms of the future choices that countries are making, increasingly uh, it makes economic sense uh, to invest in these technologies. But I think the difficult thing is the transition. So I think the, the fundamental point I want to make is that there is a clean energy future out there that is probably better than the than the than the current technology profile because it will end up being cheaper in the long run. It has less environmental harms uh, associated with it, like pollution. And because the world is moving in that direction, it is also going to be the basis for economies to be competitive. So point B is better than point A, if, if where we are today is point A. But the costs of getting there are not trivial. The transition is very, very hard. And the process of transitioning uh, is going to be costly. 
So I think that's really how we should frame this, which is not whether we have to get there, but how we have to get there and how those costs are borne. Okay. Tejal, your take. Yeah, yeah uh, thank you. I would say the question, as you pose it, the first is basically, is are the costs of the fight against climate change uh, high? Yes, they're significant costs is the best answer, the short answer. But the fight is uh, long drawn out and doesn't include mitigation costs alone. I would agree with Navros there. Uh, very often, the focus is solely on the estimates for the cost of mitigation. Um, these are, if you see, for example, the focus of, of the developed countries being unhappy at the outcomes of COP27, as you mentioned in your introduction, was because there was mitigation ambition. So the focus is very much on mitigation. A lot of the costs, uh, cost estimates for mitigation are based on projections of unit costs of different energy technologies for different end uses. Many of these costs are speculative and we can err on either side. The costs may be higher than we estimate today or they may be lower. For example, even 15 years ago, we could not have anticipated the sharp drop in solar prices that we are seeing today. On the other hand, there are other elements of the cost, say for storage technologies, grid integration and grid balancing, that become important at higher levels of deployment of renewable energy technologies. These costs are very often not considered uh, when accounting for the future costs. However, what makes this process and the fight and the costs of this fight much harder uh, is that uh, for developing countries, uh, we need to do a lot to increase resilience. And for this, achieving higher levels of development is going to be our first defense against the impacts of climate change, the costs of which are going to be much higher. They're already quite high at even the 1.1 degree Celsius warming that we see today. So we have to develop while including additional elements in our development plans that will help us adapt to changing climatic conditions as well as protect our people from the increasing frequency and intensity of extreme events. This is a huge challenge, and we must acknowledge this upfront as the first frontier of the fight against climate change. Um, we also have to take into consideration that much of our infrastructure is yet to be built. At this point, therefore, how significant are the costs that are, how possible is it to do this with new technologies, with renewable energy technologies and green technologies alone, it as yet, is as yet unproven. At current levels of technology, my answer would be that this will be a much higher challenge. I'm a little more pessimistic in terms of uh, what opportunity this uh, means. There is this entire discourse around uh, opportunity on renewable energies uh, that I think downplays the serious trade-offs that exist in moving away from known technology too soon. Um, so I think this uh, the, the costs, both uh, in terms of... Uh, avoiding foregoing the use of known technology, which to a certain extent we will have to, are complicated further by the fact that we have to do this while building resilience to climate change and protecting our people from the impacts of climate change. So it is a much uh, a much bigger challenge. So can I come in on this, Prashant? Sure, please. Yeah, so I, I, think, I think this way of talking uh, about it is actually the, uh, and I agree with with Tejal here. So let me make two or three points of agreement and then some distinctions. The first thing is, it is very important for developing countries to build uh, resilience. There are two ways to do that. One is just growing, becoming richer, for sure. But the other is growing and becoming richer with an eye to limiting your impacts uh, on climate change. So for example, the choice of crops uh, you deploy, the way in which you manage your coastal areas, 
So the way we think about development can no longer be innocent of climate change as well. So that's the, the first point. The second is, I think this language of opportunities versus costs is really appropriate. And the and I think indeed Tejal is a bit more pessimistic uh, than I am, but we are beginning to learn now about some of these opportunities. So for example, you know, there are modeling studies that have been done uh, for states like Maharashtra and Gujarat, which shows that it is possible to have 50% renewable uh, energy uh, generation without additional costs. And, uh, you know, it would take take care of the storage requirement needs, which would not be 100% storage, but it would be a limited amount of storage. So you can do renewable energy to a substantial extent uh, without increasing costs. But here's the bigger factor, right? The bigger factor is, if we are looking at the competitiveness of the Indian economy, and uh, then you have to think about how are you locking in your investment patterns to be competitive into the future in a world that is increasingly going to give competitive advantage to low carbon technologies and their adoption. So even when it comes to building technologies, there's a big incentive for India to figure out ways to build buildings that have lower uh, requirements of heating and cooling, uh, predominantly cooling in India, uh, because this energy efficiency is going to be at a premium. And that is something that will be good for India in the long run. And it will also probably give us competitive advantage in terms of experience with those technologies. So in other words, I think there is a real reason for India to look forward towards incentivizing thinking about more energy efficiency for sure, and to some extent, low carbon futures for our own sake, for our own sake. This has nothing to do with responsibility for addressing climate change. And here, I think we are on the same page. The third point that I would make is that, and I think we'd probably agree on this, is that India's energy needs are definitely going to grow. And that's true of the developing world as well, uh, more generally. So while in the future, we may be able to meet our energy needs through renewable energy in the short to medium run, and one can debate whether that's seven years, 10 years, 20 years, it's unclear. But in that decadal sort of time frame, we will have to have more energy from fossil fuels. And this is where the discussion of climate equity on a global scale becomes important. And this is why I think India has been reluctant to lock ourselves into anything that curtails our ability to grow energy in this transition period, right? So I want to bring the focus on this transition period. I think that's really, really important. Okay. Yeah, but my question is actually to the last point that you made about like, is it really fair to expect the developed countries to actually, I mean, because most developed countries have per capita incomes that are pretty low. And do we like get from here to what the per capita income levels of like the really developed countries with the use of renewable energy? Is that really possible? Like solar, wind? I don't think that's really possible. Do you think that's possible? Uh, fossil fuel seems like a must for, for us to get to the developed country status. My answer to that question about is is it possible to achieve higher levels of energy and there of course you know eventually when you attain a certain level of uh, well-being and industrial growth and development or uh, you know whatever it is that however it is that one wants to define it uh, not in terms of extreme levels of uh, unequal wealth distributions but you want to define it in a more uh, sort of egalitarian manner that's also fine but the basic minimum also uh, is in terms of universal well-being would require much higher levels of energy, but also require much higher, a lot more in terms of expanding material goods and services at this current level uh, to our people. 
So much of our infrastructure, like I said, is yet to be built. We need roads, housing, hospitals, schools, industries. This is all possible for, with renewable energy at this stage of our development. And I think Kanavos and I are on the same page uh, where we say that, no, at the current level of technology, uh, it is very difficult. We need other sources of energy, which are also equally fraught with other concerns and contestations. Take hydropower or nuclear energy, for example. And we have not even begun to seriously try out uh, carbon capture and utilization technology. So I think the entire point of this fight, which you allude to on equity and common but differentiated responsibilities in the climate change negotiations, India's position on the fair consideration of the carbon budget, which has been articulated by the minister also and is in India's LTS as well, is important precisely because of this uncertainty of technology and the scale of the challenge, right? So there is uh, the, the developing world, I, I would say, does not have the luxury of unconstrained use of fossil fuels as the developed world has had. That is clear. Climate change is real. It is happening and we are going to face the impacts. So we have to pursue much more deliberate, purposeful and optimal utilization of fossil fuels that will allow us to bootstrap ourselves to a low carbon future. Even this is not going to be easy, but it is necessary. The developing world is much more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So we need to utilize our fair share of the carbon space to build resilience and create the means to transition to a non-fossil fuel future. It is necessary, however, that our current efforts to this end are not utilized by uh, developed countries to free ride on, on, on our efforts. So the benefits of our efforts must accrue back to us. So therefore, that, I mean, that, that is how this feeds in this entire uh, discussion of what India should do, because eventually climate change uh, is, is a global problem. So even if we do a lot, it will be of no use if you're going to face uh, uh, higher impacts because the others don't do as much, right? So the conversation of what we must do must always, I think, be uh, placed alongside what we must demand also from other countries, especially developed countries to do in terms of mitigation, support for adaptation, etc. Et that is the way I would frame it. Okay. Mr. Nauros? Yeah, so this is a really uh, good discussion and I'm actually... Uh, let me start with the point where I uh, very strongly agree uh, with Tejal uh, and then talk about maybe where I see some distinctions in, I think, not in how we think about this, but how we talk about this, actually. So I think that she is right, and I would, and I, this is something I have been saying and others have been saying, that we don't have the luxury of unconstrained fossil fuel use or high-carbon uh, energy trajectories. In other words, a high-carbon path to development is no longer really possible for any country because if we all chose a high carbon path to development, then the impacts of climate change would make development itself uh, uh, much less tenable and would undermine the benefits we seek uh, from development. Does this mean that we are obligated to do a maximally low carbon path? No, right? But I think this is where the opportunity story becomes important and where the disagreement between Tejal and myself, perhaps, on the nature of the opportunity becomes very relevant. If you think that there aren't many positive opportunities, then you won't deviate very much from a high carbon path. If you think that there are positive opportunities, you might, in fact, deviate quite a lot from a high carbon path. And let's be clear, whatever countries are saying in terms of you know, reducing emissions for the sake of, of climate change, in terms of their national politics, what you're finding is country after country is doing what is politically supportable at home. And that is often 
things that find other benefits at home, you know, the, the sort of co-benefits, if you like, of, of, of mitigation uh, action. So you're not actually seeing countries stretching that much beyond what they would uh, otherwise do. I think the, the solution really rests in finding where there are links between development and mitigation. Now, I want to sort of, in terms of how we talk about this, Tejal talked about the carbon budget, which I think is a very, very important concept, and it underpins the idea of climate equity, which says that developing countries need to have uh, the space to grow because we we didn't use up most of the carbon budget, the rich world uh, uh, did, and that carbon budget is, is in fact shrinking. But, and this is a big but, looking forward, the question is, if we are in fact accepting that we don't have the luxury of unconstrained use, then are we arguing to have a share of the carbon budget that we want to use uh, uh, up to its maximum limit? Probably not, right? We want to actually use as little of it as we can, because if we uh, use the carbon budget to the full extent in which we have, uh, in which we claim a right to it, we will probably be a low technology backward society in 20 years. In a world that is moving to a low carbon future, we actually need to, as you said, uh, not think of having the luxury of, an, of unconstrained use. So it's a, it's a somewhat a nuanced argument. I think the carbon budget is a really good way of interpreting what happened in the past. But in terms of what's happening in the future, we have to search hard for that opportunity story. And I think that opportunity story is actually quite large. Let me give a couple of examples. When we build India cities, indeed, we have, we have not built out much of our infrastructure, but when we build India cities, do we really want to go down the, the Western model of private cars and uh, widely scattered cities, particularly in the US, much less so in Europe? Uh, it's not a good idea from an Indian development point of view. We already have cities that are much more dense than most Western cities. We already have traffic speeds that are much slower uh, than many other parts of the world. We have to build our cities around public transport, to some extent around walking and biking, around urban planning that decreases the needs for mobility. This is the way we want to build more livable cities. And that is also going to be what yields to what leads to lower uh, emissions. Uh, when it comes to uh, the power sector, there are studies out there already that show that if you in internalize the health costs of coal-fired power plants, about two-thirds of India's coal-fired power plants today are not economically viable in terms of the social cost, not the private cost. So there are lots of reasons aside from climate change where it's in India's interest to accelerate this, uh, this transition. So I think that if we, if we are agreed on this idea uh, that we don't have the luxury of unconstrained use, and it's in our interest to look as hard as we can for overlaps between development objectives and low carbon objectives, then I think that's a very productive space to be. Yeah, uh, Prashant, can I come back quickly on this? Yes, yeah. So, um, yes, so the, the idea of uh, the carbon budget uh, is that there is a, given that it is shrinking and we've not utilized a large share in the past, I mean, the point that I made earlier about the fact that, uh, you know, whatever efforts that we do, that we do, I mean, the, fa the fact that we are going to have to try really hard to look for the solutions that uh, Navro spoke about. And those solutions are not necessarily um, within an economic and politically acceptable system of doing things are going to be uh, easily accessible always. Right. So given that uh, that is uh, happening, we the claim to a fair share of the carbon space then becomes a necessary element to also ensure that our efforts are available for our own benefit. They do not. We do not simply hand over that whatever the efforts that we that we do in this space to others who are 
you know, uh, especially the developed countries, for example. Right? That is one point. The other is uh, there are, of course, things that we must do. And this is irrespective of uh, whether climate change was happening. Or, right. Air quality improvement is something that is a, a huge uh, uh, issue for us that should, should, in fact, be our first priority. We must address issues of air quality. There are uh, direct impacts on our people, health impacts, and we must do this. Even if it does not give us mitigation benefits, we must do this. These are developmental objectives that we must meet, and there are likely to be uh, some overlaps. Public transportation is a uh, is a uh, is a given. But if we if we frame the entire economy-wide transition in this uh, way, we might end up in a situation where we only look for developmental options which have mitigation co-benefits. And I think that would be really, really dangerous because we have also uh, examples of serious trade-offs. For example, we have in agriculture, there is an entire uh, literature available that talks about irrigation being maladaptation. So you, so it, it is, it's like a, a restriction on providing irrigation to your farmers because it would mean more energy, it would mean more emissions, etc., uh, etc., now, this we know is a problem because irrigation also leads to increased productivity, which also improves resilience of farmers, especially small and uh, marginal farmers, right? And so uh, we must be careful that uh, the idea of mitigation benefits of developmental efforts doesn't, uh, you know, overshadow the idea that our developmental efforts have to be what drives uh, our uh, approach towards uh, the way in which we think about. So, so Prasant, I'm, I'm, I have to come back one more time, I'm afraid. Yeah, sure. So, so the, um, I, I think the, the, the key point here is that I don't think at anybody in the spectrum is claiming that mitigation should be the dominant objective of Indian development policy. And that's, that's just not what I'm saying or anybody I know is saying. The question is, can you approach this as a multiple objective problem, right? Where you are looking at development and, and that's a gloss for all sorts of things. It's a gloss for growth, it's a gloss for distribution. Uh, so it's a term that encompasses growth, it's a term that encompasses distribution, air pollution, local environmental benefits, and a low carbon future. So the question is, is it legitimate to include mitigation outcomes or a lower carbon objective as one among several things that you seek to manage your policy around? And I argue that it is. And the concern about using a, a framing that says India is entitled to a certain share of the carbon budget going off into the future is that we don't need to include that as an objective. So as long as we're on the same page on this, that it is worth including that as an objective, keeping an eye on both opportunities and indeed trade-offs. Let me give an example of a trade-off that I take very strongly. I think, for example, the shift to gas for cooking has had huge benefits for, the, for Indian women, for children, um, uh, in terms of indoor air pollution. And even if it is on net, uh, uh, emits more greenhouse gases, India should definitely be accelerating that transition. And in fact, it's a little bit of a pity that it's that it perhaps is slowing down. So I completely agree. We look at both opportunities and trade-offs. But I do think we look at those opportunities in a clear and objective way, with mitigation being one among a slew of different objectives and not necessarily even weighted the same as the others. It can be weighted less as far as I'm concerned but we should have our eye open to it. And it's worth having that, having that framing. Now, sometimes I hear people saying, well, but if we talk about the fact that sometimes there are opportunities that come with some of these choices that undercuts us in the international negotiation process. 
And I think that that line of argumentation is unconstructive because it basically says, let us have a closed-ended and not very open domestic policy discussion just because you're worried about being pressured internationally. I don't think India needs to be worried about being pressured internationally in that sort of way. I think we're more than capable of standing our own. And the Paris Agreement construct basically says that things have to be nationally determined. And I think we are more than uh, capable of saying that they should be nationally determined. So So yes, I can see that there may be a risk of this, but I think it is counterproductive to not ask the question, where are there good overlaps? Between, develop, between the development we want and the low carbon futures that uh, that we can uh, try for. I'll move on to my next question, Tejil. Uh, like, I'm going to go on to the whole thing of like uh, the approach towards uh, cutting down emissions used to be like grow, going green. Uh, it usually seems to mean like going uh, like opting for more like electric cars or electric things and stuff like that. So. Is there clarity on the, uh, I mean, the carbon footprint of these kind of technologies? Uh, so are they really actually going to cut down on greenhouse gas emissions? And secondly, also, do you have a like a approach to like right now the whole approach seems to be on like cutting down emissions, emissions, emissions. But the fundamentally the problem seems to be the problem is the I mean the climate issue is about uh, the global commons issue. So is there a way to like uh, address the fundamentals of the I mean at the, the root cause of the issue? Uh, rather than just focusing completely on the uh, amount of emissions that each country makes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So let me answer the first question first. We need to define, I think, what green technology is first. So uh, analysis of life cycle emissions of renewable energy sources have shown that their life cycle emissions are less compared to fossil fuels. Now, this is quite obvious. Uh, There will be other impacts. Some we know now, such as, for example, battery materials, uh, what it means to mine uh, the materials and what their utilization, recycling rates, etc., etc. We are finding out some of the impacts now. There there may be some impacts that we will know only later as their use increases. We will have to innovate to address these. Uh, But this, I think, is the nature of technology. But our only option is to be in line with science and technological innovation to address the challenges and also make sure that we need modern science and technology to address these challenges. There are arguments that favor uh, restricting demand, going back to traditional ways of doing things, etc. I think while efficiency and sustainable consumption must inform our choices, many glorifications of traditional ways of doing things uh, ignore the immense hardship and drudgery this means for sec- large sections of the population. Women in particular, I uh, you know agree with Navros that providing cooking gas to everybody must be our first priority. Uh, eradicating the drudgery of manual work in the household side of it must be our first priority. For this, we need modern science and technology. We need to therefore brace ourselves and start working towards meeting the challenge of producing these technologies to this end with of eye on how we can do this with lower carbon content. But uh, there is uh, uh, no doubt that we uh, this is going to be challenging. I do think that there are even known technologies have costs. The southern region, for example, is paying a huge amount in money uh, to not utilize coal and utilize renewable energy, which means a significant burden in terms of energy bills for uh, you know households so this how do we address this even in the near term is something that we need to think seriously the other thing is yes carbon space must be thought of it is a global commons it is a resource which is rivalrous in nature so its fair distribution must be the starting point of the way in which we think about the utilization of these commons 
policies for imposing caps on emissions was, must be designed with this understanding. This is both a more scientific understanding and an understanding that supports uh, the question of equity. Right? So caps on cumulative emissions, I, I would think, are inevitable because it is not an ever-expanding resource that we have. We have a limited resource, you know, depending on which temperature target we, uh, we, we think about. And therefore, thinking about how emissions can stay within, cumulative emissions stay within this resource, it must be the way in which we start our conversations on this. Within this space, then, what we can do must be determined. There is no country, let, let me say, in the developed uh, region, so high-income high countries or upper-middle-income countries even, that have been able to achieve high levels of human development without overshooting their fair share of the carbon space. So just to be within our carbon space is also going to be a challenge for us. Um, uh, again, perhaps my pessimism or uh, hedging against the uncertainty of technology as it go, as we go forward is probably showing here. But I think we need that hedge because we uh, otherwise a lot of it uh, beyond the next five years is speculation. Okay. Now, Ros, your take. Yeah, so I agree that uh, I, I think indeed we, I think we have very clear agreement that India's energy needs will grow. And in the short run, that probably implies that we need to be able to have a claim on fossil fuel use. In fact, I've written elsewhere that a sensible global principle for fossil fuel use, given that we have the, that, uh, uh, you know, to keep to a carbon budget globally, we cannot burn all the fossil fuel that we have collectively found some of it has to stay in the ground a sensible principle should be that fossil fuel use should go to where it has the greatest welfare gains and that is in poorer countries because a, a ton of fossil fuel use gives you much greater welfare gains in poor countries where the use is lower so i think that's that's a and that's perhaps another way of thinking about the equity uh, story so but i the idea of a hedge is right which is that you try and limit your emissions not just for global reasons, but because you will have all these other associated development benefits where they are possible. Um, and because, let's not forget this point, and because it is likely to be convergent with India becoming a more competitive economy in the future. And we made this mistake with, with renewable energy. We focused on deployment of renewable, of, of solar energy, rather than focusing on stimulating manufacturing of uh, renewable energy. So I think we've now sort of thinking much more in terms of becoming competitive producers in, in these uh, new low carbon technology spaces, which I think is a good idea, because at the end of the day, the number one problem in India is going to be job creation uh, for the next decade or two. So I think that hedging approach uh, uh, is right, where we have a claim to that space if we need it, but we try as hard as possible not to utilize that claim. Now, in terms of the cub, in terms of the global collective action problem uh, framing of this, there are two framings of the climate problem. The one, which is a, if think of it as a system, it is indeed a global problem, a global collective action problem. As a political problem, that problem, that way of framing it has not ended up being productive because it requires countries to agree to capping their emissions many decades off into the future. And political systems work on three, five, seven year cycles. So countries, we tried for two decades to get that agreement. And then we shifted to the system where you have countries doing national pledges and periodically reviewing them and urging countries to increase those pledges. That is the nature of a political system. So we have a mismatch between the sort of scientific understanding and the political understanding. And at the end of the day, this is going to be dominated 
by that political understanding. I do not think that we will have political agree agreement around allocation of carbon budgets. What we will have is political agreement around means of support to accelerate that transition. And that's what India needs to be focused on. The investment needs of this transition are going to be huge. Uh, currently, 3% of our GDP is accounted for by fossil fuel uh, uh, revenues. Uh, so we have heavily depend on fossil fuel for our tax revenues. That is a big hole that will have to be plugged over the next decade or two. So, so my argument is that we have to also understand the nature of the political construct, and we should be arguing in terms of support for the transition. This is a problem of a very, very challenging transition that we need to try and accelerate and manage uh, and be arguing for uh, that support in the global arena. Thank you, Nauru, and thank you, Tejit. Uh, great having you both.